didn't make any other boo-boos here. Let me double check. So that's definitely not what I want. The human mind had to be suppressed. People were thinking for themselves. They didn't need bombs or chemicals. They understood that the most powerful weapon was fear. It ate at the human condition, like caged rats around our heads. Our thoughts just rotted, decayed, until the old world had just become a part of our imaginations. By dismantling the core of society, they divided us, making people fight with one another. It allowed this to become a psychological war amongst the people. The virus collapsed the economy, allowing the new world credit system to be introduced. National governments formed to become a one-world government and religion became illegal. No one could pay their mortgages. Property became government-owned. You stayed in line or you were hunted down like a witch. Police were given 100% power and the city's empty offices became the workstations for the fascist state. The collection of data and monitoring human behaviour became the stable economy. No one could understand why and how this happened. That was part of the plan, keeping people disorientated, kept them asleep, and holding on to the system. The lockdowns had mentally worn people down, broken their minds and true understanding of reality. They needed the virus only to accelerate the changes that they were already making. It was the perfect smokescreen to bring about their new world order, which they had been working on for decades. Human evolution needed to be reversed us enough to construct the artificial reality they desired. There was no use for us anymore. Unless we merged with their machine and followed their path to destruction, we were useless. The number one objective of the reset was depopulation. Humans were over-exceeding resources. Carbon emissions had to stop to allow certain technologies to be introduced. But it was also a resetting of the mind, individually and collectively through everlasting satanic rituals to give us human trauma, allowing them to steer evolution as they wished. Mental illness had become like the common cold, and by this point, the virus had been forgotten. We were told there was a return to normal, but we were put deeper under their spell. No resistance gave the permission to oppress and do as they liked, but it was only the people's blindness that led them into their trap still could not face the truth and by not facing the truth they created a shadow and when that shadow filled the light the darkness became so dense people were blind we became frozen and led like lambs to the slaughter we are spiritual beings experiencing a physical reality but we trapped ourselves in someone else's dream the dream seems real we do have the ability to change it at any time. Dictatorships only exist with followers. You don't have to go with the obedient herd. There is another choice. Are you scared to be an individual? Or are you happy being the submissive slave? Okay. So, that shows that, you know... They're going from COVID-19 into a different arena 
that was rather small, so I think I could probably get away with doing, um, um, a larger one. Okay, and like I said, the first part of this is all going to be about the reset. We also have seen that the COVID crisis, the pandemic has accelerated change that was there. E-commerce has now uh, grown a lot. We see that the companies that have come out of this crisis stronger are the platform companies. In the platform economy, the winner takes it all. But we're also seeing that countries are going back and um, reassessing the global value chains. They're also saying that uh, some of the production has to be regional, uh, even national. And how do you reposition trade 
and continue with a formula that has brought us unparalleled growth the last decades, but also adjusting for uh, some necessary adjustments that have to happen. We have a great panel uh, to discuss uh, the future of val global value change, the future of trade. Um, we know that things are changing very fast. On the other side of the lake now, at the WTO, they're discussing who's going to be the next director general. We know that MC12 was also uh, delayed uh, due to the COVID. We're also seeing countries looking at, okay, if we can't make any multilateral deals, maybe we'll do plurilaterals that later on can become multilaterals, especially in areas like e-commerce, but also services and all this. The panel. John Denton, Secretary General, International Chamber of Commerce. Matthias Hedwell, Global Head of International Commerce and Trade at Baker McKinsey. Shi uh, Xinxia, Professor of University Business and Economics, People's Republic of China. And Murat Emerdag, Chief Executive Officer at Hepsiburada in Turkey. So, great panel. Looking forward uh, to the dialogue. Let's start with you, uh, John and related to how are politics of business and business views on trade changing. Over to you. Two, three uh, minutes, and then we'll have also um, opportunities for follow-up questions also from the audience. Thank you. John. Uh, thanks very much, uh, and I'm glad you put time constraints on. Um, uh, I actually uh, am particularly well informed uh, at the moment, as you know, uh, ICC is the institutional voice of 45 million businesses. Uh, and what I've been doing over the last COVID period is pivoting us to a much more global, but also regional nuance. So I've been convening action groups, both uh, Sub-Saharan Group for ICC, Pan-Arab Action Group for ICC, uh, Latin and Central American Caribbean Action Group, and this morning I just put together the Asia uh, Action Group. What that does is brings together the business communities. For example, in Africa we had something like 37 countries and the business communities from 147 different centers. And this morning, with the 25 different countries in Asia, plus uh, I mean, an amazing array of business people there, and what I can bring to you is a, is a pretty pretty clear view. But uh, uh, when we talk about the uh, global trading system, one thing that's really important for us is that there are actually some consequences there from a the business perspective. We want to maintain the movement and support for open economic settings. That's absolutely critical. Uh, we actually want to eliminate obstacles and distortions to uh, international trade. We want uh, free and fair competition amongst businesses. And we want to expand the trading goods and services. So we see a functioning multilateral trading system as supporting all those things. It's a basic premise. And that is not new. That is a part of the continuum. We also want a rules-based system that could provide security, predictability, and certainty. And we want a fair, effective, and efficient system for settling disputes. So these are just the basic conditions. But we are seeing three trends which are disturbing our capacity to deliver those things. The first is this constant move now that we're seeing underpinning COVID away from multilateralism. As I've often said, the black swan in all this has not been the pandemic. It's been the failure of global political leadership and cooperation, where organizations like the ICC are critical, because we can bring together still coalitions that are capable of willing to work on these things. We also need to give a real jolt to the whole process of multilateral trade. But we need some proof of life, frankly. And later on today, I think we'll be talking about fishery. But we need to see that. And we need to see that when we talk about 
the, the new incumbent, the prospective incumbent for the WTO. We need someone there who's capable of driving a reform agenda and understands the modern nature of the economy and ensuring that we have alignment between the settings that support the WTO and the reality of the uh, of the current uh, economic situation we're in. We look, you know, uh, with, uh, the uh, NAFTA was formed at the same time, frankly, as the WTO. We've now just announced uh, the, the upgrade of NAFTA to the M- MCMSA. Uh, where's the upgrade for the WTO? These are sort of things that business wants to see. We're also seeing, as you correctly identified, your, that there's actually a big change to the underlying systems that actually support multilateral trade. We're seeing that in terms of the supply chain argument. We're seeing some pretty arbitrary and unilateral interventions about what resilience of uh, supply chains should look like. Frankly, governments can make uh, can form views on these things, but you need to engage with businesses. We are best able to determine what a resilient uh, supply chain and value chain looks like. We're also very conscious because of the dominance coming out of Asia, the Asia discussion this morning, where we've got something like 85% of the complexion of Asia is built of SMEs and micro SMEs. The reliance and importance of supply chains, but also access to the NAVs to enable that to happen. We're already seeing pricing uh, ranging around uh, trade finance access from up to, up to 15% now. There's actually just kind of enough around that it's being priced very at a very uh, severe level for SMEs and micro SMEs, so we need to do more work in creating liquidity in the trade finance market to enable us to actually get SMEs functioning again. Um, and that's one of the things, by the way, we've just launched an action an action group on that as well. The other element, which I think people don't fully understand, is the multiplicity of interventions by states along the way of COVID-19, and the fact that a number of those interventions have not been reported or are not transparent. We often do not know what we're actually having to grapple with in a line. So there's actually real uh, uh, information disequilibrium, basically confusion. Do we need to write that? There needs to be a lot more uh, transparency around these things in terms of access to information. And there needs to be much better coordination between business and government. I mean, if we're going to have a recovery which is sustainable, it needs to be an economic recovery which is supporting the, 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 the sustainability and to actually drive the economy, governments can't do it alone. Uh, we actually need to ensure that the private sector, which is in the ultimately, ultimately, the entity which creates jobs and preserves jobs and builds new jobs, is directly involved in That's these more things. than three so minutes, dude. Three critical elements. And from our point of view, uh, one, one critical thing that governments <laughs> should do, and this is something that we're pushing, and I think the web's been very helpful on this, is that we actually need to uh, reassert that a multilateral trading system that functions is actually in everybody's interest. We also need to ensure that the fractionalism we're seeing around uh, uh, around uh, the world at the moment in terms of protectionist stances, or I think Pascalamina portionism, doesn't further impede the capacity of uh, uh, companies and entities to actually operate. And finally, we need to actually think about what does WTO reform really look like? How do we keep stuff? So we, I'm obviously we're going to have later on now, but we need to actually have a clearly articulated roadmap for that. We've identified the five key steps, and I'm happy to talk about those, but we also need a leader uh, in the WTO who can actually help drive that, but we also need the G20 to function much more effectively to support that, because frankly, at the moment, one of the things we're seeing out of the G20 is a lack, I think, of authoritative and imperative, and uh, a lack of, uh, of uh, strong motivation to continue to preserve the multilateral trading system. Some of the Thank states you. are being good, but they're not actually effective enough. So thanks very much.
No, thank you so much, uh, John. We'll come back to uh, the multilateral uh, trade system for many of us that have spent uh, long nights negotiating in a WTO uh, context. We know that uh, it only takes one country uh, to stop uh, a process that there is pretty broad uh, consensus around. And, uh, you know, the Doha process is still going on and uh, it started in 2001. So it shows that we have to be very uh, imaginative when it comes to how does this uh, look in the uh, future. But we also have to be very practical about it. What uh, are the new steps taken No, uh, of more uh, tariffs, more protectionism, but also um, regional uh, trade arrangements being established? What are the practical impact on this for business and countries? I think uh, very few are so close to this as uh, Baker uh, McKinsey and also uh, you, Matthias. So please share with us how you see this um, as someone that is a practitioner in this field and very close to business. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and I uh, hope I can share some lights from a practical point of view on this. But let me just set the scene first. When uh, the Economist Corporate Networks in March listed the world's 10 major risks to the world economy, four out of 10 were related to trade disruption or trade wars, including, of course, the US-China relationship and uh, Brexit. So free trade disruptions is not the new thing. It's, it's not about COVID. We have seen a substantive impact on uh, trade since at least three, four years in negative terms. Um, increasingly, therefore, companies must be aware and follow the developments closely. Companies in cross-border dealings they must set up their businesses to be agile, resilient, and prepared. A lot of these trade disruptors are driven by the trend, as we mentioned before, on protectionism or economic nationalism, maybe a better word. And for companies, this means a new landscape to navigate in, and it changes rapidly. And I have to, to emphasize that this is not just about supply chain. It's very much about the demand side. We, we forget the demand side sometimes. And one of the major uh, areas where we see differences is in, uh, in logistics. So uh, I think when we talk about supply chain, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm facing quite often uh, in my daily work, uh, some of the trends that I would like to share are uh, the following. Uh, what we see right now is an increased focus on compliance. And this is, of course, very important for companies to, to focus on. We see, uh, as we all are well aware of, an increased foreign investment uh, control focus, which will impact uh, not just the trade and, and the, uh, the supply chain, but also very much uh, the, uh, the, the, the transaction side uh, between the countries. Uh, one interesting observation is that human rights aspects influence many areas in trade today, not just, for example, the export control side, where we have seen a, a high interest in that. And just a couple of days ago, we, we saw uh, actions from the UK in this area. Uh, 
so it's a very much a, a focus around rethinking, structuring, planning of supply chains and how to secure deliveries uh, in, in a cost-effective way. Uh, so what shall companies then do and, and focus on? Well, in the current climate, from a practical point of view, I would suggest to have uh, a two-step approach. One thing is, of course, to handle crisis like the COVID, when you just have to react instantly to, to do whatever it's necessary uh, to do. But if we take the, the next step, or the first step, is uh, for companies to review and analyze uh, the business relationships and understand how to adopt and what shifts are possible. It's very easy to do this in your own little bubble, but what is important is to also go to the local market and make sure you take into consideration the local environment and, for example, local law. Uh, and when this is done, you can map up the risks and uh, make sure that you focus on where the high costs are or the high disruptions. For example, do we have an area where we have extremely high penalties for non-delivery or for late deliveries? Maybe that should be highest on your agenda. The second step is to handle this situation a bit more long term. And uh, again, I think the holistic analysis is the best way of doing this. But that holistic analysis needs to cover all angles, both practical and regulatory. Very often we focus on the regulatory side and we forget about the practicalities. And it's also important to focus on what are others doing, especially our customer side or our, our supplier side, because the disruption we are talking about here is not something which just hurts one company. It hurts us all, and we're a little bit in the same boat in trying to solve this. So when you have done your holistic uh, analysis, you can uh, do a long-term plan, which should, of course, uh, not be rushing away, making uh, rapid changes, but instead have a uh, be prepared to do uh, the changes that are necessary in future disruptions. So look for alternatives and uh, make sure you are quick and agile to make changes in case there are things needed to be handled. But it's also important, which is a little bit against what I just said, to be able to rewind because things are going back and forth. We have seen that a lot with with the, uh, the different disruptors and the trade war, for example. So, okay, maybe just to finalize, if I may, uh, yeah. one. Uh, I think just to finalize, it's a great challenge uh, for the trade world to reset and change the negative trends in the world we have seen. But it is important for the companies to be prepared, and I think that is is my my take here. Uh, and of course, there are also a lot of opportunities in this, and they shall, of course, be captured. Um, so free trade is important, and it will not go away. It's for us uh, to just make sure we are on top of it. Well, thank you so much, um, Matthias, uh, for this uh, insight. Uh, we still have two panelists. Um, 
uh, left. Uh, I'll have a couple of questions there. And then also there are questions uh, from the audience that I will come back to and we'll try to distribute uh, between uh, the pa panelists. Let me now uh, turn to Professor uh, Xi. Uh, you heard that there are, of course, necessary reforms that we will have to go through, but there is also this uh, issue of stabilizing what we already have got, protecting WTO, that is also now uh, being questioned. So, uh, to you, Professor, um, this dilemma about um, stabilization and reforms, and where do we see uh, this uh, multilateral uh, trade cooperation um, in uh, the future, will we see more regionalization uh, and more plurilaterals and less uh, multilateral uh, initiatives? Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, uh, President. Uh, I'm particularly happy to be on and uh, thanks a lot for the invitation to join this fascinating uh, virtual meeting. Uh, my short answer to uh, the post question uh, is quite positive. Uh, yes, we do need to prioritize the stability or reform in international cooperation uh, for the great trade reset. Um, I would like first to emphasize that due to the pandemic of COVID-19, international cooperation become even more significant than before when it comes to resetting uh, trade system, including uh, WTO. So the year 2020 has been associated, as we can see, with many multi-dimensional crises. Among others, COVID-19 alone has generated extraordinary economic and trade costs. However, the crisis yield new understanding and opportunity as well as uh, my other uh, panelist colleague has just mentioned. So against this background, my following intervention uh, involves three areas or issues which sh should be given priorities in stabilizing or reforming international cooperation for the trade reset. Uh, due to the time limitation, uh, I'm not in a position to provide any kind of uh, comprehensive roadmap. But instead, uh, my remarks briefly uh, addressing the following points. The first one, for the international commerce to function smoothly, I think trade policy and actions should support an inclusive, sustainable, and resilient recovery from uh, COVID-19. International cooperation that provide critical global public goods must be strengthened uh, for this purpose. So I mean WTO reform, uh, an old problem with many, uh, so many new challenges. Uh, as we can witness the Trump administration's wide-ranging criti uh, criticisms of the international trade agenda and norms has hugely affected the global trade agenda. The current pandemic has even placed additional strains on the WTO system as well. So the upcoming ministerial conference 12 is very important to provide an opportunity to advance WTO reform initiatives and help COVID-19 recovery efforts as well. The second point I would like to mention is that e-commerce or digital trade should be given 
priority in the research. Uh, we understand that the WTO is not traditionally equipped with effective tools to deal with uh, modern issues such as digital trade. But the COVID-19 pandemic has greatly promoted the use of e-commerce, including uh, expansion of cross-border trade as well. So the global nature of the pandemic and its impact on e-commerce may encourage international cooperation and the further development of trade policy in this area as well. Therefore, the ongoing plurilateral negotiation on e-commerce and the auspicious of the WTO is of extreme significance in many aspects. Among others, the political wills and the cooperation among three major players, which are the United States, the EU, and China, holds the key to the success of this important negotiation. Last but not the least, China-US cooperation, uh, despite a bilateral relationship, has a big impact on trade reset agenda as well. So as we can see, the world's major powers are currently engaged in a careful balancing act when it comes to navigating the very complicated and ever-changing competition. So in recent years, tension between the world's two big largest economies has rolled global markets. The COVID-19 has unfortunately even added additional fuels to the simmering uh, U.S.-China uh, rivalry. But the U.S. and China, uh, in my view, have strong and complementary advantages. The tech war we have been witnessing and uh, the decoupling between the U.S. and the Chinese economy are ultimately going to hurt them both. Both countries should have interest in international cooperation. For China, I think continuous liberalization of trade and investment and develop a real uh, market economy is helpful to fostering a healthy international environment for its development. At the U.S. side, despite the path of protectionism and isolation in recent years, we still expected to come back to internationalism because this is the best foundation for its own uh, prosperity and the world peace as well. So I think I'm uh, going to stop uh, here and um, uh, I welcome your um, questions. Thank you so much. No, thank you, uh, thank you um, so much. Um, extremely interesting, uh, Professor Shi, and as you said, um, the possible decoupling between the two largest economies in the world will, of course, have a lot of impact since the U.S. and China is almost half of the global GDP. Uh, it shows the size of these two economies and also uh, the impact. Thank you also for underlining um, what you said, that um, it is also in China's interest to continue uh, the reforms, uh, also the economic reforms. That will also make China more um, competitive uh, in the sense uh, of uh, a future trade um, regime and also um, complying uh, with the WTO. So let's uh, go to, to Murat, uh, your uh, CEO uh, leading a uh, Turkish uh, company. You're saying that business models also have to change now uh, in the post-COVID 
world in a in a great um, reset world. Not only do we see more platform companies, we see more e-commerce, but how much do you think those new business models also um, will uh, reshape our view uh, of uh, international trade and commerce? Thank you so much. I appreciate this great opportunity. So like you said, Hepsiburda is the leading e-commerce platform in Turkey and surrounding region, aiming to address over a billion customers within less than four hours flight distance from Istanbul. So just to give you an idea, uh, as you know, e-commerce actually played a critical and essential role during the pandemic and actually showed all of us that actually it's needed for a sustainable, scalable and purposeful economy. So I want to give you five tangible examples that we actually observed during the pandemic. One actually was uh, millions of customers were able to access products and services during these tough times. So e-commerce was able to continue the services uh, in a non-stop, in a health, most healthy, secure way. The second one actually is the international sourcing and logistics. Actually, we realized the international sourcing and supply chain can be re-optimized using these data-driven e-commerce platforms as regional distribution hubs. The next one actually is the innovative ways of uh, payment solutions or contactless delivery. These kind of new value propositions actually change the consumer mindset and gave new opportunities to innovate. The next one actually is uh, small, medium-sized businesses and female entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs. They were able to actually continue their business and grow uh, by accessing new markets during these tough times. Last but not least, you were able to see also actually uh, there are new ways of for collaboration amongst government, private sector, NGOs, and and academia. So it was actually a great time for us to see if we can create impactful and purposeful collaborations that can contribute back to society. Just in a nutshell, I would say I would like to say in a world uh, where half of population was born after internet, it's impossible to reshape the economy without uh, taking new business models into consideration. No, thank you so much. I think that is a good reminder. And um, let's also face it that uh, half of the population of the world is um, younger than 27 years old. So as you said, um, half of the world has not uh, seen the world uh, without um, also uh, the internet. Also see how much it has impacted now um, the company scene 10 years ago two of the most valuable companies in the world were tech companies. Today, seven out of the 10 most valuable companies in the world um, are tech companies. It is really a big change when, uh, for example, Netflix is more worth on Wall Street uh, than ExxonMobil that used to be the most valuable company uh, in the world. So things are changing. And I see the questions that are coming in uh, from the audience. It's also uh, related a lot to this. One of the questions is, in what areas are trade rules particularly outdated? And I think this is also uh, relevant uh, to what Murat just said now. Maybe Matthias, uh, would you uh, try first? And then I go to John. In what areas are trade rules particularly outdated? Well, it's it's. Uh, I I think it's it's very uh, clear that the the different regulations around trade has not developed in the same way as the World Trade has. 
and uh, especially i mean we've now talked about the digitalization and the the uh, technical revolution we see a lot of, of uh, examples uh, where the trade rules are not adjusted to that uh, for example in, in um, export control and in in secure on the security side in transfer of, of uh, information technically there is a, a clear uh, lack of understanding how quickly this is moving and uh, the regulations are, are slow to react and that means you have to in this area and many other areas apply old rules to new situations and and uh, for us as, as uh, lawyers and dealing with with this from a practical point of view that is uh, quite frustrating from time to time thank um, you yeah yeah no, we, if, if you Please, I let you laugh. <laughs> no, and, and, no, and, and maybe just another example uh, is, of course, that uh, we. Well, I was trying to to find a way also to loop this into the free trade agreements. Uh, also, on that side, I think the free trade agreements are not updated fast enough to to deal with the transfer of uh, of this. So I think that's another area where, where we could uh, try to increase the understanding of the new environment. Well, thank you. Uh, John, uh, where do we see um, areas of uh, particularly uh, outdated uh, regimes? And will we then, if there's still a stalemate, uh, real impasse on WTO, will we see how will we see countries dealing with this? Will there be more FTAs? Will there be more regional trade deals? Or will we just trade less uh, with each other? But that's probably not even possible because we see e-commerce uh, growing so much. And e-commerce doesn't load, uh, doesn't load um, the borders. Yeah, but never underestimate the innovation of the private sector to work your way through these things. But it better be 100% clear. The WTO came into force uh, in 19, early 1990s at the same time as the internet actually went into the public domain. So let's, not, let's be very clear, the process of pulling together the WTO was done absent the operation of the internet. The internet only became usable as a commercial platform when you were actually able to have agreements which came subsequent to the entering force of the WTO around payments. Without those payment protocols, it didn't work, it was just a very interesting idea. And so if you think about it, there is an unbelievable disconnect, which is perfectly understandable, between the needs of the modern economy, as you've eloquently articulated, and Murat has actually described as well, which is now very much e-commerce reliant in terms of the way which it operates, and the actual fundamental rules guide the WTO. For heaven's sake, we actually have to argue to maintain a moratorium on tariffs being placed on digital download, which is the underpinning of the operation of e-commerce and for the development of database businesses. The Netflix could not operate if there was a, 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 a failure to maintain that moratorium because it could be subject to imposts on, uh, on one bill uh, from 65 or 122 different countries and of course, the way in which the digital download operates is that you actually move the actual operability from one node to another. It's actually unworkable. But you actually now have to, in a sense, band-aid the 
the actual whole process to enable it to happen with the maintenance of a moratorium. And the fundamental of the moratorium is that one country was the nature of the WTO. If it refuses to support its maintenance, can blow it all up. And so that's something that ICC heavily involved with in in last year to maintain that moratorium. We would like to see it made permanent. But of course, upgrading the, uh, the WTO to make it relevant in the 21st century requires it to dramatically engage in this whole issue about how you have a global commons integrated. WTO is best place to do it. If you can't do it, then we have to find workarounds for that. One reason that um, we are so heavily involved in this is you want to know that from uh, our engagement time to time with the WEF because we are a completely purpose-driven institution, not-for-profit, with our ability to set norms and standards, it's about 45 million stretch. We have our own courts, our own governance system. We actually are positioned to actually create an interoperability, which can actually enable that to create almost like a private business commons to enable that to happen. But these are the sorts of workarounds that will be required if your description of the bifurcation and the detachment or the decoupling goes on. So we need to have these various institutions in place. But there is no doubt that if we don't actually ensure that the WTO's rules are relevant to the functioning of the 21st century economy and the speed with which it makes decisions are improved and that people can be held accountable for their, when you enter an agreement, you breach this accountability, then frankly the WTO and the multilateral trading system will function organizations like the ICC to be strong to enable that to happen. And yes, we've already seen a plethora. I think I've got a number here about the number of, uh, uh, there's 303 separate trade deals, which is kind of benign uh, in, in, one, in, in one, one level. But unfortunately, because of the increase in protectionism, you're seeing the benign nature of those trade deals starting to become, become more entrenched and actually leading to potential fractionalization. Again, supply chains only operate. You can actually operate across all. You actually need to be able to have, have that happen. And this whole nonsense, which is now describing resilience as actually really another way of saying reshoring, is going to cause a huge problem with that. But we actually need to ensure that any discussion about resilient supply chains and maintenance involves businesses who know how to operate those supply chains. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you also for ICC's uh, uh, leadership uh, on this. We, we have several questions coming in and we have 20 minutes left. So we'll need to then um, use two minutes each uh, in the answers from, from the panelists. I have one question. Uh, can the WTO deliver a trade reset? Maybe Professor Xi, you will This is the World Economic Forum, the trade reset. Okay, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, I, this as is I the just enemy mentioned, I think uh, in, talking about uh, during trade this reset. particular difficult or hard, hard time after the mess they made, all the international institutions, uh, including uh, World Trade Organization, which have been providing uh, public goods in uh, promotion of global trade should be strengthened. This is a very particular important, you know, we all need to um, understand. So my point, basic point is that 
WTO is still very important institution. Um, even though WTO has been uh, facing a lot of challenges, particularly from uh, you know Trump administration, but it's not uh, beginning from Trump administration. We all understand that you know even from Obama administration, uh, that that was criticism from the United. United States towards the operation of a pilot body already. Um, despite so many uh, crises, uh, crises uh, faced with WTO, particularly from my own perspective, the cease to function uh, of a pilot body has done a lot of harm to its independent, its very important role of dispute uh, settlement. So I think at this time, we also particularly from uh, uh, even um, including the United States and China, all major players should work together to make WTO great again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I think we all took note of uh, this aspiration of making WTO uh, great again. Um, then uh, there's a question here maybe uh, to you, uh, Murat from Aisha Al-Safi. How will lockdowns affect trade and investment decisions? Uh, I think actually this is a great time for digital companies like ourselves, for e-commerce companies in, in particular, to invest in innovation, logistics and operations. So we take this period of time, actually a great opportunity to invest for our future. So we are investing in heavily operations, logistics and innovation technology, especially data-driven decision-making processes, uh, because we understand that the demand for digital solutions will continue to grow and we need to establish and build the infrastructure that can support and serve that demand. So this is the time for us to invest. Thank you. Um, maybe, Matthias, you could uh, give this one a try. Uh, so this is from several people that uh, are asking, how can we make the case that trade um, provides supply chain resilience? Um, it's a tricky how, one, huh? Can, how can we make, can you repeat that? How can we make Yeah, yeah, I had to read it many times myself. So, uh, how can we make the case? Yeah. Trade provides supply chain resilience, you know. Uh, oh, oh, it's, I, 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 let's rephrase it so we both understand it. I, I, I think, how can we make the supply chains no more resilience even in a time where they're being under attack? I, I think that's... Uh, yeah. to, to get people understand the importance of the global supply chains. As I said at the outset, I think we have a tendency of forgetting how important the global supply chains are. 50% of the current global trade goes through global supply chains. So if you just cut them out, that will have a um, very negative impact also on uh, global growth. No, I, I, and I fully agree with that. I mean, free trade is, is so important uh, and it will not go away. Uh, so the free trade and, and the flow of supplies in different supply chains uh, is, is here to stay. And, and one of the world leaders said uh, the other day that 
I have never seen anything negative with free trade, uh, and and we just have to face uh, the different uh, stakeholders' impact on this, and and we we have discussed this already. And as I mentioned before, I think the best way of being prepared uh, and and make this resilient is to make sure the knowledge about uh, your own supply chain is as high as possible so you are ready to adapt because it will change the, the environment for supply chain will change and it changes every day uh, but you have to know how to navigate in that and if you know your supply chain and your different uh, uh, bits and pieces that affects your supply chain uh, you can be ready and, and adapt this but it's also a cost side and we shouldn't forget this some a lot of people have said that the covid will will make all the supply chain change we will take them home to our own country we will do that that will not happen that's that that is for sure because it's quite a high cost to make movements in your supply chain so so it's also of course a, a question of, of that but if you do it the right way and we have seen this i mean this is post uh, not not post-COVID, this is pre-COVID, uh, we have seen an increase in uh, the company's interest for better managing the supply chain. Uh, so supply, supply chain management is something which is high up in the C-suite these days. Uh, and we have a very interesting bit to add to this then, and, and maybe we can come into that. But, then it's also how to be compliant and how to be sustainable in this. In this, uh, so you should add that to your analysis. But but uh, that that's a little bit another story. No, no. Thank you so much, Matthias. Uh, thank you so much. Very important points. Uh, I think small adjustments uh, are uh, okay because it it makes sense. You know, if eighty percent of all, um, for example, um, medicine. Uh, is um, coming from one place or 90% of the blood plasma from another one and there are interruptions in uh, the global value chains. Uh, that makes sense that you also diversify. But I think what's one of the challenges we're faced with is that there are no attacks on the global value chains and we have a tendency then to forget what it has delivered during the two last decades. If you look back uh, 30 years from 1990 until now, the global GDP has doubled. But what was the engine of growth there? Uh, it was uh, trade that um, increased three, four times, and that also delivered uh, this uh, growth uh, that has also brought a billion people out of uh, poverty. But those nuances are not always there, but I'm, I'm glad that we can uh, bring this um, to the attention when we are also looking at what is at stake. John, you got a concrete question. But with you, before you, you uh, get the floor, you also get a concrete question here. Uh, and you can say what you were planning to say, and then you also answer this question. And there is a little bit of problems with your microphone. So if you could get closer, whatever, there's some disturbance. We want to um, uh, get every uh, insightful word from you correctly so if you could adjust your mic and then i'll uh, quote uh, the question is from craig Burchell. can we trust the g7 countries not to take 
unilateral actions, and then you can also say what you were planning to say. John. Actually, I'll, I'll deal with that question separately, but let's go back to this issue of, um, of uh, supply chain resilience. Uh, it's actually really important. I mean, let's not forget the unprecedented nature of COVID-19 and its attack on the real economy. Let's not forget that we've actually got almost like the deadly troika here. We've got a supply chain shock, we've got a, we've got a so supply shock, shock, we've got a demand shock, and we've now got a financial shock. Uh, underlying all that is this huge health shock. There's been this dramatic change. I mean, the reason we launched, uh, the ICC launched the Save Our SME campaign was because of the collapse very early on of the garment supply chain. It actually collapsed. And that didn't collapse because of uh, human rights issues. That collapsed because shoppers were unable to go and shop effectively in the US. And so you saw a collapse of demand there and you actually saw because of lack of physical contact. And that went all the way through the supply chain. And we had a litany of force majeures being declared. In fact, people just refusing to pay as they saw, as they sought to maintain their liquidity. And a consequence of that was more than a million people lost their jobs in Bangladesh. So you actually then have what's called a real problem, a theoretical problem. And it's not actually a C-suite problem. That's actually a small company in Bangladesh which was relying upon a supply chain to actually pay it, lost its business, and actually got no cash and actually had to fire people. So these sorts of issues. And what we saw very early on was a couple of things. First of all, most SMEs, and uh, if you want to be resilient, they don't actually have business continuity plans. So we had to create business continuity plans, which have now been translated into six languages to actually get out, particularly in developing and, and LDC countries, to actually support them work their way through. The other is there was a lack of coordination amongst governments about how to respond. And there was no idea in some cases about how to get money, liquidity, into the real economy. And we're still grappling with that now. We need to find some macroeconomic uh, headspace for a number of economies that just can't provide and pump the prime, uh, prime the pump in order to get that cash out there. So there are things that uh, need to be done to get the supply chains going. Because we do know, as you say, Bill, when the supply chains function, they're actually in posit a, a positive force for employment, a positive force for opportunity. And so, But it does require a lot more focus, and it does actually require some real-world interventions, which is really important actually getting down into the weeds and actually unpicking the specific question you ask about can you rely upon, can you trust the GC? I think one of the truths here, if you look at the all the multilateral trading system, the G seven can't do it. G seven may want, will make positive statements in support of it. But the G seventy seven and developing countries will not be told what to do by the G seven. The best organization which can actually step up to the plate to support there is the most inclusive of that piece of those pieces of economic architecture, which is the G20. And what we need to see under the Saudi leadership is a very forceful intervention in the multilateral trading system. We need to see that continued with the Italian G20, and we need to see that continued with the Indian G20. There needs to be confidence built over time. But without that, without the inclusiveness which comes from having developed and developing countries involved in decision making will not get the kind of uh, progress on multilateral trade reform that the world suggests it won't come from the GCC. No, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I think, Professor Shea, could you follow up on, on what John just, uh, just said there? I uh, fully agree uh, with what uh, John just uh, has said. Uh, I, I think, you know, uh, 
as we all can see, the trade-related sources of global uh, tension has a significant uh, impact on international commerce, uh, including you know the changing of supply chain and even uh, have sparkled a fresh round of you know more broadly the debate on the merits of globalization. Uh, some have even speculated that the disruption uh, caused by a pandemic uh, permanently damaged the economic bonds supporting international uh, cooperation. Uh, but coming back to the, the, the theme, the trade reset agenda, uh, I still uh, think, you know, even globalization is not going away uh, anytime soon, but it may look somewhat different uh, post uh, the pandemic. However, ultimately, I'm, I'm the one, one of the many who still believe, uh, you know, this crisis has demonstrated how crucial international cooperation is in uh, various aspects, including uh, trade reset. Well, I'm particularly, uh, I think, imp particularly important to refrain uh, from uh, imposing new trade and investment restriction. The best way um, countries can reset the trade agenda or system is to build a strong international uh, and cooperation network, which are necessary to alleviate the economic difficulties and the hasten of recovery from the pandemic. Thank you. Uh, we just got another question here, if you can uh, give it a short try. Um, uh, it's from uh, Mahesh uh, Sugatan. Uh, should we strengthen uh, the social safety nets to avoid backlash against trade openness? You have this notion that uh, opening up the markets have exposed um, also for competition that has hurt maybe blue collar workers in developing in developed uh, economies the whole social uh, safety net piece uh, how can this uh, be addressed without killing growth these are uh, you know uh, the big uh, dilemmas and also it's about the legitimacy of the global uh, trading system so easy question to you professor again for me <laughs> okay uh, uh, I just you know, I recently I look at uh, you know some example uh, like so-called reconfiguration of global value chain uh, linking economies, which could involve a shortening that reduce some regions' dependence on relatively small number of foreign supplies. So uh, all these are very uh, quickly uh, changing, uh, but I think uh, a major among the variously uh, hiding concerns, there are some reasons for uh, for hopes as well. As we emerge from a moment of current crisis, we can imagine uh, the great trade reset, the theme of this uh, discussion, from the crisis in a way that not only makes us more resilient to future shock waves, but also help us help the global community rebuild towards the better foundation for international cooperation. Uh, I think everyone here truly needs a bit of perspective and let's, let's do it. 
you know, not only uh, we need to utilize the, the platform like WTO, but the G20, even G7, OECD, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, forums to make international trade, um, you know, uh, 